Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we are discussing this month's book club book, S.H.I.E.L.D. by uh, Jonathan Hickman and Dustin Weaver. Excelsior. Welcome everyone. We are back with another book club and this time we have another guest. Took a break with no guest last time, but welcome, Marn. Hello, I'm Marn, uh, and I also co-host the Argonauts podcast. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless plug. The Argonauts podcast. That sounds like it's a really clever pun about how it's um, you guys are exploring alternate reality games, or ARGs as they're colloquially known, and I totally thought of that because it makes a lot of sense, and not because you explained it to me before the show. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, only a fool would uh, miss, miss uh, <laughs> this reference. Yeah, the pun, the pun definitely comes across in dialogue and not just on paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of the perfect book, actually, to be talking about with regards to alternate reality. <laughs> You're so right. I hadn't being... even thought of that. You guys, yeah. you guys are geniuses. We try. But before, uh, let's before we get into that. So, Marn, uh, I guess let's establish a few bona fides. And by bona fides, I mean random trivia facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, pronouns, what's your Marvel history? Uh, do you have any prior Hickman experience, etc.? Oh, okay. So, I use she, her pronouns. My Marvel history is that I used to read a lot of Marvel comics in, like, probably high school and, like, middle school. Uh, I have semi-fallen off that wagon since then, but I do keep up with Hickman's X-Men comics, uh, which I really enjoy. (laughs) We talk about those sometimes on this show. You know, just every other episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's like one of the few Marvel comics I'm actually current with, so I feel feel like this was a good pull for me to read, because I like Hickman's writing. We're finding in doing this show that we're um, we're primarily picking stuff from, like, the uh, late 2000s, early 2010s is our sweet spot of when we were, like, the most into Marvel. When was that for you? Oh, jeez. That probably sounds about right. I didn't read a lot of, like, the mainline Marvel stuff. I read a lot of, like, one-shots and, like, um, the Ultimate Universe stuff, I feel like. Oh, yeah. The Ultimates is all... We we talk about Ultimates on this show a great deal. Ultimates is... Uh, the first book I read when I got back into stuff, for better or yeah. for worse. <laughs> yeah, um, I was definitely really into Runaways during its original run, and I, I've been reading like the new Rainbow Rowell Runaways and really enjoying it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it's hard to find a bad run of Runaways, but I'm yeah. sure there's somewhere in there that's... Oh, I could find you rocking. one or two. Yeah, there were some that were like <laughs> very hit or miss, I would say. Uh, but I, the, uh, I still have my trades of those original Runaways uh, when they were still like those manga digest size. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And they don't fit with the rest of my trades at all. <laughs> yeah, That's they, the point. They like made them that size so that they could put them in like the teen section or whatever because they like thought they would appeal to teens who are really into manga. Yeah, I think they called it the tsunami line at the time. And it was they all these books that they were like, cool teen uh, and Runaways is the only one that had any staying power. 
except for my cult favorite, which is, um, oh my god, I forget the kid's name, but he's got a pet sentinel. Do you guys remember this character? That sounds oh. vaguely familiar to me, yeah. He shows up on Avengers Arena and Avengers Academy. He's like Justin or something. <laughs> Has he shown up in, like, any of the Hickman era? I regret to, to spoil this, but if I recall, I think he dies in the arena. Oh no! Oh no! Spoilers for a 10-year-old comic. Um, but yeah, that was one of those uh, Toonami books. Not Toonami, Toonami. <laughs> Toonami was another play on that. Um, that they did in those digest size. But that's totally, um, yeah, I think we're all of the same era then. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. Yeah, that so, sounds right. S.H.I.E.L.D. What? Are... This series. <laughs> this series, man. I first heard about it. Oh, when was it? When when they were talking about probably about a year, two years before it actually came back. Uh, so for those of you who are not aware or have forgotten because there's just too much stuff in the world. <laughs> and this is really minor. Uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. was a set of miniseries published by Jonathan Hick. Well, Hickman didn't publish it. Written by He's Hickman, though. Written by Hickman. Uh, and illustrated by Dustin Weaver, uh, along with a host of colorists and letters, which we will get to in a minute, uh, that came out uh, starting back in 2010. It had one series that ran for six issues, and then it took a little break, had a one-shot, and then had another series that was set to run for six issues. But it ran for four issues every other month, and then disappeared off the face of the earth for nearly a decade before coming back with its final two issues and a re-release of the original four issues in 2018. So it took them seven years to finish this. As as you do. <laughs> I, I'm the, a weird victim of this publishing schedule because I actually, um, I read the original issues when they came out. They blew my mind. And then I was waiting for more. And then when the return happened, um, I completely missed it. And I didn't know that the series ended until we were planning to read this for book club. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and I say this as like a huge Hickman fan who owns um, uh, the Nightly News in hardcover. Oh God. Um, right. Do I did I not know that they had finished the Shield series? Marn, did you hear of this series before being asked to to read it for this? Uh, maybe like vaguely, but this was the first time that I had actually like been aware of its existence beyond like seeing the book titles. <laughs> I remember this was before I knew what comic book websites were, so I was just going to IGN for all my comic book news, because that's where I went for cheat codes or whatever. Oh no. And I saw they had you a didn't comic go to GameFAQs? I mean, I had been to GameFAQs, but GameFAQs is a pretty vile place. Yeah. <laughs> IGN is at least kind of like glossy in a in a, a not unpleasant way. But um, they, they were pushing it really hard, and they were like, this, this new guy Hickman has got it, and it's going to be the secret history of the Marvel Universe. And I was like, secret history? Wow. And I grabbed it, and I devoured it, and for years, uh, the Dustin Weaver, a bunch of the two-spade spreads have been my desktop backgrounds. Like, totally was into those issues, and did not realize they had finished it, because all of that fanfare that was only happening on IGN.com, a website that I don't think I've visited since, um, I guess they would have been the ones to tell me that had finished, because no one else did. Oh no! (laughs) Uh, But I've read it now, I've read the ending. It was just a, what a wild way to publish a comic. 10 out of 10, only took seven years. <laughs> yeah, seven years. Jeez. But okay, so, um, Eliza, so one thing that you noticed was that um, the credits of this book are a little weird, right? 
Yeah, so it's credited as being written and illustrated by Jonathan Hickman and Dustin Weaver. Now, this is not normally the case on Marvel books. Most of the time, you've got very separated roles, uh, unless they are, you know, actually a the same person. Usually, if they're, if they're writing and illustrating. So, like, when Frank Miller was doing stuff, or for, like, five issues, <laughs> or Walter Simonson, and uh, those those artists... Uh, I don't know if Louise Simonson was an artist as well. I think she was just a writer. I think she was an editor and writer. Okay, so dual roles, but not not the ones I was thinking of. Yeah, well, yeah, so, you would never say written and edited by Louise Simonson on the same book. Um, yeah, but, that's that, kind of, but that's the weird thing that's going on here, right? Is that um, just Dustin Weaver is an illustrator and Jonathan Hickman is a writer, but they're both given both credits. And they probably didn't really do both things. No, I don't think Jonathan Hickman could pull off any of the art. <laughs> He has tried. Yeah, he has tried. I was going to say, he has tried. Uh, I think he designed most of the very strange data pages that show up throughout oh, the they, That vault. tracks. That tracks to me. <laughs> I wonder if he did any coloring. Mm. I don't know. I could believe it. There's a lot of credited colorists, so he would just be one more name among uh, many, because we have um, credited colorist uh, Christina Strain, Justin Ponzor, Sonia Obak. Obak? Obak? Um, Rochelle Rosenberg, um, and Dustin Weaver coloring his own stuff. And among those, those are some, like, uh, some A-list names in there, huh? Yeah. I mean, Justin Ponsor, he recently, within the last year, I think it's a little more than a year now, died of cancer. He was one of the star colorists at Marvel, uh, for a good long while. And this is one of his earlier books. Uh, we talked about him when we talked about Young Avengers, because he colored a, a few issues there. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then Dustin Weaver coloring his own stuff. Rochelle Rosenberg still in the industry, still working. Doing fantastic work. She colored one of my favorite colored issues of X-Men of all time uh, about two years ago. Which which issue? Um, it was one of the uh, Matt Rosenberg issues. Okay. The one where Cyclops and Wolverine are reunited and most of the fight is told in silhouette and just Rosenberg basically gets to draw a whole fight scene and she crushes it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I actually wanted to ask if either of you had noticed a measurable difference between the coloring in volume one and volume two hmm. because i did yeah i was say 100 percent. i did i notice yeah i feel like looking back on it now yes um yeah and the colors are kind of weird in the in the first volume they're um it's not that it's pastels they're, but everything's like a little pale and muted yeah i liked that did you guys like it yeah, it looks like, like, like an old storybook illustration more than like a modern Marvel comic with like its deep uh, computerized uh, color generations. It's very like sepia toned, I would yeah. say. Yeah, that's a great word for it. <laughs> that color I was trying to describe. <laughs> it gives it kind of a an, an old feel. Like yeah. we're looking into the past, which I guess is kind of what we were doing. And the future sometimes, which also looks like the past. Although, no, the future's kind of colored more vibrantly. Mm-hmm. Maybe Ponsor did that. That's true. <laughs> and there were, there were, um, yeah, and then the, the coloring, uh, the coloring in the second half didn't, like, I feel like this, the strange coloring in the first half, like, really brings out this amazing quality in Weaver's art, and then the second one, his art feels a little bit more like everyone else's art, even though it's still quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Marner, are you as enthusiastic about uh, the Weaver art as Elias and I are? I really liked it. Yeah, I um, I read quite a lot of comics, but not like Marvel comics. Um, so this felt very kind of like standard comic style to me, but I feel like the, the coloring definitely enhances it a lot. Yeah. 
Obak did, does do a great job. It's just, I kind of wish we had more strain. Yeah, I love strain's work. I, I don't want to, to knock knock either colorist, but like, I missed the coloring in the first volume. Until we got until we got to like issue three of, of the second series, and then I'm just like, <laughs> throw my hands in the air. Doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I do also really like like the environments and the backgrounds. They have a lot of depth to them that I really liked. Yeah. This is a very dense book. And that's the thing that's so unusual to me is um, I can't think of many other comics that like uh, all the cityscapes and the jungles and he'll draw this. I I guess it's kind of like um, very different stylistically, but the only other artist who I can think of who does something like that is um, I was drawing that sentence out to hope that I remembered his name. (laughs) Describe the work. Um, Or uh, Stokoe, James Stokoe. Oh. You know, when you look at a James Stokoe... uh, uh, illustration it's just like overwhelming and there's like a million little squiggles and uh he, when he draws godzilla you can see like all the little uh scales and nicks on godzilla's flesh mm-hmm. um and that's a and that same overwhelming feeling is what a weaver's art does to me but it's like with these really fairy tale cities and environments and machines yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they're very like cluttered but in a way that's like nice to look at kind of like a renaissance painting or some renaissance paintings oh for sure yeah yeah, yeah. or like a big mural I wonder if there are any direct allusions to any Renaissance paintings throughout this, because, like, that's basically what this is. It's just the Renaissance, but with secret spy alien tech. Well, so should we, we talked about the history and we talked about uh, who is involved in it. You want to just, like, go through what this book is about, which, if such a thing is even possible? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, I did want to, before we get to that, there was one thing I wanted to, to also ask about. Uh, did you both read this in trade, or did you read it individual issues? Uh, I read it indiv- in individual issues. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't recall. I'm looking, I'm looking for the copyright page when I purchased this trade. But, um, <laughs> this, this is the is, return. This is Shield Architects of Forever. Mm-hmm. And, it was, oh, and it was 2010 is when this hardcover came out. And I think I bought it at a used bookstore, and that's been my copy, mm-hmm. and it ends very abruptly. <laughs> and I read the rest of it on um, a Comixology. Okay, but did you read it in, in, in single issues or trade? <laughs> on Comixology, I read it in issues. Okay, so in trade, the way they've published it is the first series, and then the second series, and then they have at the end, Shield Infinity. Shield Infinity is four different stories that basically amount to a bunch of filler that came out in between the two series. But I wanted to know what did you get? Did you read that? Did you read that issue? No, I did not know. That I that didn't. <laughs> ah, taking the wind out from under me. No, no, I wanted no, to know what I, you thought about the decision to put it at the end of the second trade instead of at the front, which is where it would have been published. I can't speak to that question, but um, I wanted to talk uh, after we at the end of this a little bit more about where some of these characters and ideas have resurfaced, mm. and you're, that would be a perfect time for you to tell us what we missed in those little one-shot stories. I will do that, and then I'll also tell you all the artists on that issue because they're not credited in the volume. <laughs> of course, oh, no. Marvel. It's ridiculous. Marvel comics aren't drawn; they're grown from golden eggs. <laughs> God, I wonder if they did that so they wouldn't have to pay royalties. Oh, I hope not. That, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. Um, I'd like to say that they wouldn't do such a thing, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. All but right, S.H.I.E.L.D., so, what's S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. about? Um, S.H.I.E.L.D. 
yeah, it was touted as the secret history of the Marvel Universe. And when I heard that, I thought it was going to be so cool. I thought we were going to be seeing, like, Wolverine and where he was at during all this. And then, like, maybe we'd be getting some, like, 1602-style action with, like, the medieval uh, predecessors, the ancestors of uh, Marvel characters. Where well, were the we, banners we, in we Europe? We kind of get that, sort of. Um, maybe. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, uh, it was yeah. just going to be, like, a, like Forrest Gumping a bunch of Marvel characters through uh, world history. And I thought that sounded great. I thought that that's what they meant. That is not what this book is. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Mara, do you want to give a crack at it? Uh, I also thought, well, I also thought when I started reading it, I was like, oh, this is probably going to be some like Marvel 1602 stuff. And I was completely wrong. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, Elias, I think you, uh, I'll come in for the assist. No, I, I, I think I can describe yeah? what we got. Okay. What do we got? We've got brand new character, Leonid. He's introduced in the first page. I have no idea what's going on with this guy, but he's got secret eternity powers. He, he when he walks on on the page, he you know becomes space, he's and with stars. he's inducted into the Brotherhood of the Shield, which is not Shield as in the United States Strategic Homeland, yada 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 yada, where the acronym came after the name, but instead a millennia old Brotherhood sent to protect the world that started with Imhotep killing a brood queen alongside Apocalypse. Hell yeah. And they're named after the shield that he held. And from there it just spins out into sci-fi ridiculousness. And there are charts and there's maybe like the Kabbalistic tree and all this talk of the quiet math and like, you know high concept ridiculousness and we're introduced to leonardo da vinci michelangelo nostradamus isaac newton all 500 years or more after they were originally alive and they all got these stupid hats amazing hats (laughs) they're amazing but they're also ridiculously stupid oh well my trade explains the origin of the hats seriously yeah, there's a little uh, Weaver writes a little afterwards uh, about a bunch of the design stuff. And oh that's my God. one of the reasons oh. why I bought this trade. Tell us, wh- where did he come up with this hat? Oh, I the hats are supposed to be like a, like Illuminati hoods of this time. But then he was like, what if I turn the hood shape into a helmet? And then made it like a space helmet. And then it was like a Jules Verne Illuminati secret society thing. Oh my God. You know what? That, that makes complete sense to me. <laughs> right? I, I love this. Where's That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, he says, for me, the design was about doing something unexpected. It basically serves the purpose of a hooded robe, but the shape of it is pretty different. I was trying to combine period fashion with sci-fi. Newton will actually have a couple of different looks, but this one is my favorite, he says, when uh, Newton's first introduced in the little annotation. Oh, Newton. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the book ends up being about this like power struggle between... Um, I mean, right? I, every time I start talking, I'm like, but what about these 50 other things? But like, yeah. the... The main thread of it is that there's this secret society called S.H.I.E.L.D. One day they're going to be, like, swinging spies in the 60s, and then they're going to be, like, uh, Bush-era homeland security sci-fi dystopia thing that we all like for some reason. But before that, it was, like, a weird secret society where Leonardo da Vinci represented one faction and Isaac Newton represented another faction. And they had this huge internal power struggle... And the way it's presented, you're like, it's like, and this, if you understand this power struggle, you understand every conflict in the Marvel Universe. And you're like, do I? (laughs) I mean, kind of. 
Yeah, I guess kind of. Because the whole one of the whole posits underneath is that one side is representing the idea of I mean, because they both represent so many different ideas. No, but they summarize it, and this is what makes the book work. Is that um, well, I we'll get there. <laughs> but um, bold claim. But one of them represents a uh, fate. Um, and what is uh, what does Da Vinci represent? A Newton represents a uh, fate. And then I guess the other one is free will, but but it's, not he calls it quite. I think creation or invention is what he calls it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I'm maybe. flipping through my book, but uh, he said because. Newton, they there's the there's a refrain that Shield keeps saying is this is not how this ends, and then Newton when he gets his spotlight issue inverts that and is like, I know how it ends and I'm gonna make sure it happens because that's the only thing that can happen. He's like there is an ending, and the other is there is not there is no ending. Why well, I, I think the point of this is not how it ends is because they know how it ends, mm. and so all of the things before it they're like no this isn't how the world ends i always i was reading it as like like a refutation of like no this this will not be how it ends we'll think our way out of it which is uh a theme that he explores with these with all these characters because then that comes up in a huge way in his avengers run well yeah it it opens um, with the words everything ends True, but but the theme of um, he he loves uh, pitting these characters against each other, where one of them um, it, like uh, represents this like total acceptance, and the other one represents a total um, this like maverick renegade spirit that never says die and never says no, and will uh, solve their way out of any impossible problem. Right, impossible problem is words that Hickman has written fifty thousand times, I'm sure. It never is, um, except right. what it is actually. They aren't able to save the Marvel universe. That's true. I mean, that's why that story's good um but okay the other there's a lot of other characters in this but the other important thread and the closest tie we have to like familiar marvel characters is that um uh nathaniel richards and howard stark are two characters that we follow throughout this and like how would you guys describe them because they have a really weird particular aesthetic they're just like two regular kind of like government agent guys who have been like transplanted into this like bonkers insane story (laughs) Like G-Men, right? Yeah. yeah. With like their gray suits. The men in black. Their appearance yeah, in issue one was baffled me. Yeah, they're just like two regular just like FBI agents who are just like around. They show up, but then they're like, here's this magic staff that can do anything. And like, t- yeah. like what is Howard Stark doing half the time? It's just shown. It's never explained. Which... It makes this feel like a modern story instead of like a an early '60s Marvel story where you would have had an entire page of well, when I, I, changed the matter in the density of the atoms of the world, and then I made this machine that can split into thirteen thousand trillion micropostules. Michael pustules. That's Michael pustules. It's all just techno babble. Yeah, <laughs> none of yeah, that's but... here. He's just like I have a stick. It glows purple. It can fix our problems. But then they also, it's so weird, because you guys were stressing how normal they feel, but they also totally, like, know the score, right? Like, but when you're first seeing them, they're not like, what crazy stuff existing in the world? Like, you get the feeling that they're always, like, jumping through time and not telling their wives. Yeah. Until they literally do that. Well, I, wait, Martin, Martin seems like, uh, there's a, a strong opinion uh, held about uh, how they treat their families. <laughs> Yeah, I have I have strong opinions in that they don't treat their families well. <laughs> really badly. 
Which is also kind of amazing, though, because they they're there they're there to be conflicts later, right? Because like both of them are like to give their more important, interesting protagonist sons daddy issues later. <laughs> so just like casting them in the stories is like, oh yeah, you two are just living conflicts. You don't have will of your own. You're just here to ruin your kids' lives later when they get born. Yeah. They're the deadbeatiest of deadbeat dads. Oh my god, they really are. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, yeah, they're like hyper time deadbeats. Yeah, that scene where. Nathaniel leaves the house and it's just like mm-hmm. they're better off not knowing. Did you tell? And Stark's just like, no, they're gonna fake my death. And I'm like, guys, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> but Nathaniel's was really weird and fucked up too because he was just like, um, like I can solve any problem. I didn't have to say goodbye to them because I'm gonna be back and it's gonna be perfect because I'm a genius. And if I ever doubt myself even for a second, then the entire universe will end. And, to- and then not Tony Stark. Agent Stark's just like, yeah, sure, keep telling yourself that, bud. You're not making it back. Now, Nathaniel Richards is like a crazy character. Y'all know about Nathaniel Richards? No. I I know very little about him. This might have been like the first story I ever read that he was in. I know his grandson is Cable and also named Nathaniel, right? Cable? Isn't Cable Nathaniel? No, that's Summers. Yeah. Cable Summers. (laughs) Um, Well, um... Too many Nathaniels. I truly, I don't think I could do, like, an effective Nathaniel Richards um, history because it's full, full of time travel. He is also King the Conqueror. He is also King Tut. Right. That was the nonsense. He's just what? He, does, he doesn't live his... He, uh, Nathaniel Richards is, like, a crazy adventurer who's just, like, traveling through time and living non-linearly and having this huge effect on history in the far past and the far future. And Mr. Fantastic's, like, life just has the background radiation of his dad just being this, like, weird, fucked-up warlord who's just, like, constantly conquering huge eras of history. I totally forgot about that, and that now explains every time they're like, and Nathaniel used his time travel powers, and I'm like, what time travel powers? (laughs) It's Joe Schmo. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Father uh... of Joe Schmo who gets hit by radiation. But then, like, Nathaniel Rick, uh, but then Reed Richards is, like, joining the army and becoming, like, an Air Force engineer, right? Like, he's not living the life of a son of an adventure. He's living the life of, like, a upper-class guy in whatever the war is going on when the Marvel timeline slides. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. I ju- yeah, I just kind of accepted that he was, like, a regular guy who could time travel for some reason <laughs> in this book. Maybe this is where he got the time travel powers. And, and he kind of is just that sometimes. He kind of just is a regular guy in time travel. Sometimes he's also King Tut. Hmm. He's King Tut? I just... What? Yeah, for a while. What do you mean for a while? He just like dropped into Egypt and took over for a while. He's you know, crazy. As a, as a 13-year-old? He's... <laughs> I guess not. I, what story was this? Um... This is like a old Fantastic Four stuff. I think this is from the um, the John Byrne stuff in the eighties. Gets into a bunch of this. Oh wow! Maybe we'll have to dive into that just so I that we can find out what what is going on with this strange sandy-haired man. I would love to do a John Byrne Fantastic Four read. That sounds delightful. Even though John Byrne himself sounds not delightful to spend an <laughs> afternoon with. No. And then the other one is so. And then Howard Stark is like. He's not Iron Man, but he's always kind of like the James Bond guy hanging out in the background of the old Marvel superheroes. He's basically Q. Yeah, well, he'll be Q in, like, a S.H.I.E.L.D. or, like, a Captain America story. Mm-hmm. 
but we changed the age of him a bunch of times. But like, uh, but like Howard Stark is always, um, and in the Kieran Gillen Iron Man stuff, there's all that. Uh, Howard Stark made a pact with aliens, and then he uh, sold his son's soul to a Gundam. Hmm. Like he's a uh, Howard Stark is uh, getting into shenanigans too. So it's not a surprise that these are the two Hickman picks, but also, why did what? Why do they have such complicated histories? Well, because they're not, they're not characters who are supposed to have agency. They're just there to be conflicts for the protagonists. And then just like over time, we were like, well, what's it like to be an awful person who just makes problems for everyone? <laughs> right, because like Howard Stark in the, in the MCU, where he's featured very prominently, is only there as like a conflict and then an endgame, finally, a resolution for He's like Iron Man's entire arc is his daddy issues. Hey, he's great in Agent Carter. Yeah, and then it's like, what's the life like of this terrible guy who's going to give his son such daddy issues? He has to become the greatest superhero to, like, make the world his daddy. And then he goes on to become Preacher. And the, yeah, and then he goes on yeah. to... And the king of Warcraft. Seriously? Yeah, he's... I don't know Warcraft stuff. He's the king of whatever <laughs> the country is. Alright, I think this is the perfect opportunity to take our mid-roll break. Absolutely. So, we will see you all soon. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at multiversitycomics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shows on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And welcome back to Make Mine Multiversity. We are talking about S.H.I.E.L.D., the split-into-two historical epic about bad dads by Jonathan Hickman and Dustin Weaver, supported by a whole mess of talented folks. I'm still broken. <laughs> there are a lot of bad dads in this, huh? Hickman likes his bad dads. I guess Marvel likes his bad dads. Do we have a single good dad in this series? I don't think so. Uh, nope. <laughs> maybe Tesla, maybe? Um, maybe Tesla? I mean, maybe Tesla's like a weird zombie cyborg. In love with a dove. And well, that's historically accurate. Well, yes, but like... It's very weird here, because yes. it's not just a dove. Um, so do you want to, I just like, holy shit, we could just spiral for hours and just be like, and also <laughs> Da Vinci, his angelic hair. But, um, do you want to start at the beginning of time? Do you want to do this chronologically by history? You know what, let's, yeah. <laughs> I just panicked, um, I heard the panic in that pause. <laughs> um, what... I don't know if that's even possible. Well, okay. You were telling me that you wanted to talk about the beginning with Emotep and uh, yes. the Bruce invasion. Yes. So let's start there. So we start chronologically the history, the secret history of the Marvel Universe and specifically S.H.I.E.L.D. is... Well, okay. mm -hmm. Sorry, just fundamentally, I feel like um, what is interesting about this is like 
when you're reading this, you feel like it's trying to affect Marvel canon in deep ways, right? Because, like, you know when the X-Men encountered the Brood and whenever that first appearance is in the 70s by Claremont, that's the they've never seen or heard of the Brood before. The Brood is, like, not something that has been well documented by history. But now we're finding out that there was an important invasion. The Earth, humanity was almost wiped out by the Brood in the time of Imhotep. Yeah, who killed the previous pharaoh. Right, but I, I feel like part of the the fun of the secret history is, like, a, it's informing all these things about, like, okay, so, like, what do the brood mean in, like, the galactic scheme of things, right? And all these conflicts and these times the Earth almost ended and S.H.I.E.L.D. saved the world is, um, like, showing uh, the, the dangers and the history and the connections and, like, the secret history of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Do you know what I'm, I'm saying? We're, like, uh, that's what secret history means to me. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. Martin, are you like, um, do you like that sort of thing in a superhero universe where it's like, uh, getting into all the weird deep continuity, this person is this person's brother by an alternate timeline stuff? Oh yes, absolutely. Like, the more insane superhero canon gets, the more I enjoy it. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty much, uh, the attitude of everyone who's ever been on this show so far, so that's wonderful. (laughs) I, I should need a conspiracy board to figure it out. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of what a Hickman book always reads like is a conspiracy mm-hmm. board. Yeah, especially this one. Yeah, especially this one. Oh my god. You're reading the first issue and you get to the end and you're just like, that was one issue? I yeah. barely know the main character. <laughs> you never really know the main character. Leonid is, he's the son of Tesla? No, no. He's hes the adopted son of Tesla. Yeah. He's the son of uh, Newton. Newton and a deviant... From yes. Deviant City. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Deviant City, my l- least favorite quarter of the Marvel Universe. Yes, the Eternals. You know, Eli- okay, Marn, Elias knows that my my thing with Marvel is there's not a single Marvel property that I don't, don't think has, like, one redeeming story except for the Eternals. I don't think there's ever been a good Eternal story. Interesting. And they're making a freaking movie, and I was like, oh, my God, you're trying to make me care about the Eternals. And then right before the movie came out, they announced they're doing an Eternals comic with Kieran Gillen writing and Asad Ribic on art. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to care about the Eternals. And I'm really mad about it. <laughs> that sounds cool. So Deviant City and all this Eternal stuff, don't care for it. Don't care for it myself. Yeah. So, yeah, but then Leonid is taken by Michelangelo, raised by Michelangelo a little bit, and then given to a dove that he transforms into a woman to raise, and then Tesla shows up, they fall in love, take care of this kid, and then Tesla, I guess, just goes poof and disappears, leaving Leonid behind. Yeah, And then there's something about a (laughs) celestial star baby? Yeah, there's a celestial who's born inside the sun. Um... I, believe... I think we've done a very poor job of summarizing this series. <laughs> <laughs> but also, because you could just say, it's Da Vinci and Newton fighting across time. Yeah. But also, all of this. Well, that's, a, yeah, it's all allusions to stuff, too. Like, um, I have to admit, I haven't read um, the Earth X trilogy since I was much, much younger. I've never read it. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That sounds vaguely familiar to me. They're currently doing a series that's kind of the lead up to it marvel's x yeah right? it's it's like a spiritual successor and it's got a lot to do with the that alex ross did the art and that's kinda, the big draw yeah it won the it's kind of alex ross's baby mm-hmm. but like the, the original earth x is like this weird incoherent sci-fi 
uh, apocalypse no- opera nonsense. But the celestial baby being uh, born in the sun and that being like the purpose of the earth is like all very much a part of that. Huh. So I, I feel like there's all these references to uh, weird corners of Marvel continuity. Yeah. All right. Let's let's take one step back and go back to the chronological thing. <laughs> okay. I tried. Sorry. No, the first thing about Emotep that I... Um, well, do you want to talk about Apocalypse? Is that what you're excited about? Yeah, because I didn't notice it in the first issue, but I believe he draws... Yeah, there he is on the... On, like, page eight. Yeah, I'm looking there's, at it. There's Apocalypse right behind Imhotep. And I'm wondering if this is going to come back in the Hickman era. Like, it's just such a tiny detail. He plays no part in this story at all. Well, it roots you to the time. You know, we're in ancient Egypt, because that's where Apocalypse was. And it also, like, Apocalypse is Apocalypse, right? But he's following Imhotep in this battle. So that implies that, like, in this era, Imhotep, with his legendary spear and shield was such a phenomenally powerful warrior that even Apocalypse would follow him because he just, like, knew that he was the fittest, right? It's, like, his, it's like his bona fides. Yeah. Um, is what, I think, the storytelling purpose here. But then just, like, will we return to it? I don't know, but I would love to. I gotta hope that this is on his mind with all the Araco stuff, and then you can fit in what happened to the, the spear. This stuff comes up in, um, man, just, like, read all of Hickman chronologically sometimes. This all, in Secret Warriors, he plays with a lot of this. That's still one I haven't read. I know. We'll, we'll we'll come back to that. But what I wanted to talk about is how the shield goes to the west, but the spear goes to the east. Yeah. And oh, yeah. This book is, as a lot of American comic books tend to be, very Eurocentric. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was going with that. It's just like, but to me, that's the most galling and the one that um, bothers me the most because of what, like, it... it says thematically. Yeah. Because I, I feel like um, the reason... When you frame S.H.I.E.L.D. as this organization that's, like, gone back to, like, a, for as long as humans have existed, and it goes back to the S.H.I.E.L.D. of the first great warrior who saved the Earth, um, and the spear has the same kind of, like, mythic quality, for the spear to go east and then be, like, the weapon of the bad guys, I feel like is a real... Oh, yeah, like, Russia, China, Japan, that, they got the bad guy weapon, so they were the bad guys for all of human history. And I think that's fucked up. Yeah, that is really fucked up. I didn't connect the spear to the bad guy weapon. Well, the spear goes, when the spear goes east, it goes to the countries where, like, Hydra has been. Because Hydra, um, in the secret history of Marvel, like, starts off as, like, a a ninja cult in Japan and China and stuff. And then the Nazis get into it. But but that is bad. (laughs) I wish that Hickman didn't reinforce that. Yeah, yeah. I I was even thinking more of Hickman doesn't focus on the spear like we don't really learn because they they're shown to be throughout this not comparable and bad in she in shield they're just shown to be a counterpart in a different area so like we have um zhang hung in uh i think it's 11th century china who's talking to the celestial who shows up it's also really interesting how shield is the weapon, and anytime we see, like, the spear, it's always kind of defense. Mm. I find that inversion interesting. That is an interesting point that I had not considered. And I have more to say about the redemption of the spear at the end of all this. Yeah, but it, I think that's one of the places where he really, he kind of dropped the ball. He didn't do enough to, you know, build that part of the world. He was so concerned with shield 
that he didn't he didn't think about <laughs> all the other pieces he was playing with and went, oh, because like all the important people are from like Italy. I think almost all of them are. Yeah, uh, almost all of them except, specifically. All of them except Tesla, I think. Yeah, I don't know when Nostradamus was. Um. I mean, he was old enough. It's five hundred years. Yeah, no, same France. same era ish. Newton, yeah. Newton already had century. his long life. And New- Newton Newton was an Italian. So that's actually so. I I'm sorry. Are we still going chronologically? <laughs> we, <lost laughs> the ball. We, we are like a Hickman comic. We pretend to be go chronologically, and then we just jump around, and then at the yep. end, you're like, yep, oh yep, yep. shit. <laughs> So the one thing that this builds upon constructively and like the Marvel continuity that I really like and I appreciate um, is the infinity formula. So do you want to talk about what that is in the story? It's a MacGuffin. (laughs) But it's an important MacGuffin. So do you know where the infinity formula first appears in Marvel Comics? No. The infinity formula is the hand wavy reason why Nick Fury can fight in World War II and then still be around today. Right. Right, Um, right, right. In the 60s comics. Yes. I forgot about that. But this makes it part of this entire secret lineage again, and it really ties in. I guess also the like spies and assassins of um, Renaissance Italy is kind of a famous image and vibe. I guess I just wish that he didn't try to present it like it would cover the, the entire world history. He could have just made it Europe, and that would have been impressive enough. He could have said, I mean, it is ostensibly the secret history of S.H.I.E.L.D. and not necessarily of the entire world, but by not really giving a sense that there are or why there might not have been another organization. It would have been really interesting if the spear was crushed by S.H.I.E.L.D. It's like still kind of weird, but then you're like, oh, the Europeans really did take out (laughs) the rest of the world. Right, and then it would be like uh, more saying something about colonialism yeah. and ju- just uh, doing this like weird Cold War politics thing. I don't think he had enough issues to really... <laughs> he could have, but... Well, yeah. And fundamentally, I still think the first half is much more exciting than the second half. The second half, he lost a lot of steam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the second half is mostly like fighting. It's uh, A lot of it is just like people punching each other. <laughs> yeah. Though I gotta say, when... When you say, like, Hickman is writing someone punching each other, uh, the rhythms of how they just, like, deliver their dramatic exchanges or whatever is, like, yeah. is yeah, like yeah. Shakespeare samurai theater. They punch each other, but then... <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I had something, but I was thinking, like, it's an Alan Moore script, but that's really just a book that's translated. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's really cool that the Infinity Formula that keeps Nick Fury alive, and he's the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I think there's been a lot of stories in the last 20 years that borrows this, on this idea that, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. has been this, like, secret society of super people who just, like, are always saving the world and nobody ever knows about it. From, like, weird shit. Yeah. And that Isaac Newton invented the thing that Nick Fury is taking today. That's kind of fun. That's cool. That's, that's all I wanted <laughs> out of this. I, I always got the impression that Newton didn't invent it he found it and or someone else made it before him and because he was so short-sighted he wasted it well it could have been so much more but he used it for this like little immortality drug and now in the future that's just like what it still is it's just like oh yeah you want to live forever just inject this into your eye socket nick fury (laughs) (laughs) gross but then there are like three different kinds and then we're getting more into like the hickman bullshit (laughs) love that hickman bullshit though this is this is probably like the most concentrated of all his stuff. Yeah, he really likes calling things like the adjective noun. 
Like, I was reading that whole page that's, like, the greater science, the secret alchemy, and I was like, yep, this is a this is a Jonathan Hickman book. That's an adjective, and that is a noun. Later, he just erupts, he drops the adjectives, and it's all nouns, and it's just, like, the architect. The builder. Yeah. The builder, yeah. The anchor. No, he does that at the end of issue one. Yeah. Because he... he's, got, he's got the anchor, the engine, the navigator, the source, etc., etc. That's a dumb Hickman thing that I love. <laughs> Do you guys find when I talk to my my other comic reading friends about Hickman, sometimes I find that he has this reputation of being kind of like the Christopher Nolan of comics, where he's like very complicated and cerebral, but like is he even saying anything, and are there any real emotions? That's like the yeah that that tracks. <laughs> is that how you find him honestly, or is that how you uh, find him by reputation? That's how I find him by reputation. I I feel like his stuff is slightly easier to understand than people seem to think it is <laughs> yeah although i i feel i feel kind of the same way about christopher nolan <laughs> yeah i felt well i i guess with hickman um i found that uh it, it uniquely rewards repeated readings because there's all sorts of little just things that rhyme that you didn't realize they rhymed the first time so he's so he's george lucas now is george lucas a, a poet so it's like uh like poetry it, it rhymes <laughs> That was a really good George Lucas, Elias. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, because he's he's right here. He's he's our special fourth guest. He didn't read the comic though, so he's not a lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I do agree with him by reputation, like from reading, but more so his non Marvel stuff, much more. I think because like I've read I've read his early, early the nightly news packs. Bramana, not Bramana. Pax Americana. Pax Americana. No, that's not right either. I have it on the shelf. I can't see it. I got a big digital bundle of all his early stuff, and like that stuff is dense, and it's more like trying. It it's the red string. It's the red string brigade. You're just you're just trying to piece together. He forces you to put to turn your book into a puzzle, and in seri in a serialized monthly seri uh comic that can be that can be difficult because you're just like trying to remember everything month to month and he does a surprisingly good job here i know i we kind of read it all at once but i can see how each issue would have been both easy to pick up and felt like a new like the reveal of a new puzzle piece as opposed to like just this frustrating next chapter that you're like well what is he gonna deign to give us now are you saying that this comic uh, would be appealing to people who also like args <laughs> And that's a real Hickman move, pulling it in at the 11th hour. <laughs> See, that's very interesting, because I didn't feel that about this comic, because the cast was so small, and it was pretty easy for me to, like, remember what everyone was doing. But mm. I could definitely see that with his other comics. Like, yeah. I have been reading East of West over the course of probably, like, three years, and I will just, like, put it down and come back to it, like, months later and be like, what? I don't remember anything anybody was doing. <laughs> That's why I, I haven't gotten through it yet. I have to start from the beginning every time I read it again. Oh, it's really good, though. It's thing. really good. Yeah, yeah, every time, every time a new issue came out, I'd be like, "So what happened? <laughs> who, who? Why do they hate each other?" I'm the only person I know who likes. Um, I love Black Monday Murders. You're not. The I've heard only good one. things about it. I haven't read it. Yeah, no one's read Black Monday Murders, but um, I think Black Monday Murders is like uh, Hickman doing his crazy Hickman thing at his best. Because he doesn't. Because he doesn't like he doesn't publish it on a consistent schedule, but no, a, apparently on purpose. 
I but then uh, decorum, his latest book, I find that book incomprehensible. Really, in, I found it pretty pretty easy to figure out. Impenetrable. Like I have no idea what's going on in the greater, you know, like where it's going, but I have an idea of like all the pieces he set up. I know the how, not the why. I'll probably go back to it. I've read every comic. I've, I think I've read every other comic Hickman's ever written, and I have to read that one. When I haven't finished East of West. So, did Hickman successfully get us to believe that this is in the Marvel Universe? Other than, like, the oblique references to different aspects and bringing it in. Do you guys feel that it's, you know, part and parcel with Marvel and actually slots in? Or is it just kind of a great story, but weirdly disconnected? I think despite its promise that it's going to completely change our understanding of stuff, what it ultimately does is it creates one more cool thing that you can do with a Marvel story. In the same way that you can, like, send people to the Savage Land, you can have them fight an ancient clan of ninjas, or you could have them uh, deal with Skrull shapeshifters. Now there's just, like, a cool Renaissance psychedelic secret agent city under Rome that you could go to and have, like, a Da Vinci time machine Tesla-themed adventure. And that's just, like, available, and some books have taken advantage of that, and every if anyone ever wanted to make Spider-Man do that, that would be a fun Spider-Man story. That's what I Yeah, think. I, I, I feel like it's kind of just... I don't want to say it's, like, tacked on, but it's, like, you don't need to understand it to understand, like, the mainline Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's fun! <laughs> it really is. It's cool! Um, so, do you guys remember when Leonardo da Vinci shows up in Avengers? No. No. Um, oh, shit, unless that was Secret Warriors, I'm thinking of. It might have been Secret Warriors. Um, Did that at, come out before this? Or they, could, Warriors, they were at the same time? I think around the same time. But uh, So, like, in Secret Warriors, there's a scene where the heads of Hydra, S.H.I.E.L.D., and all the other spy organizations uh, meet in that city, and Leonardo da Vinci is, like, running their meeting, and he's trying to broker the rules for the Cold War between them. Oh, interesting. At the end of World War II. And that was just, like, a cool little detour that, that um, a spy book took. But I think a lot of... I, how cool would a Daredevil story be if it took, like, a little uh, detour like that, right? And it was, like, he goes to Vatican City for something, something uh, to see the Pope. <laughs> and then he gets a... The, something, something the, Catholic something. Something, something Catholic <laughs> something, right? And then he goes into, like, the underground Rome city, and he finds out about all the, like, his secret family history and how they're tied to... That's uh, all this, like, conspiracy, your life is out of control stuff. The opportunity is so exciting to me. Yeah. I'm looking... I'm I re-looking at the first, the first few the second issue of the first series and i'm like hickman basically just lays out everything with leonid right there and you just don't understand yeah. any of it until later his favorite thing to do i think that uh nikola tesla should show up in more marvel comics personally did you think his outfit was kind of sexy i thought his outfit was kind of sexy <laughs> i really liked him i think he should just be in all the marvel comics he should just show up and be a villain that would be really cool you're totally right, though. It's like Nikola Tesla in the Marvel Universe is not just some guy who made wireless electricity. Yeah. I think they don't even have to explain why he's there. He could just show up and be a villain. Totally. It's true. Him and him I... and Dove Wife. Yeah. Dove Wife, who is one of the only two women in this book who have speaking roles, by the yeah. way. Who's, who's the other one? I was trying to think. Uh, Leonid's, like, actual biological mother, the who deviant. has, like, two lines of dialogue, and then dies! No women in Really history, unceremoniously. Huh? Yep. Another thing that, uh, this book has in common with a Christopher Nolan movie. Yep, two Oof. women, and they both die. <laughs> to be fair to the conceit, it is a brotherhood, because patriarchy. 
Yeah. And Newton would make it even worse. Yeah, but, but like also, two women and they both like their whole purpose in the plot is yeah, to raise Leonid and then they die. <laughs> it's very bad. And this is uh, admittedly an unfortunate thread that goes through a lot of his books. Like uh, you were just extolling how good East of West is and it is, but uh, while there's a really cool female lead character, she's very much put into a similar Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mother archetype situation. And, um, yeah, there's all these, like, sad mothers. He, all the fathers get to be these cool men of action and time travel in their G-men suits, and the moms get to be left at home sad and worried. Yep. Or with three lines, and that's it. Or being a bird, I guess. <laughs> I mean, can't get over that. Of all those options, being a bird is awesome. And you guys, like, know that there's the whole thing with Tessa falling in love with a bird, right? Yeah. That's Maybe. why I thought it was just a regular dove, not, not Michelangelo <laughs> transformed dove into the black swan from avengers well that's what makes him jonathan hickman and us a bunch of chumps <laughs> is that he knew that the tesla dove was really that thing you just said but she was a, she was a sexy woman the whole time <laughs> of course that's why he loved the bird <laughs> think about every time you look at something and you don't think uh what if that was a sexy woman yeah and you're just like missing out on writing a hit comic apparently <laughs> <laughs> God, I will say I did really like Leonid. I wish that he would show up in more Marvel oh, comics. No, we got three. We got we got three female coded characters. Who the Celestial Mom? Oh, you're right. <laughs> Who also only shows up for like two pages in order to die. Yeah, in order to die. Yeah, mom and die. I think, uh, Martin, you're hitting on something that that's a sticking point with me. Is that there's a bunch of these characters you, re- you really responded to and liked. Hickman writes characters really, really well. Yeah. They, um, because I, th- I think that's, um, Christopher Nolan does not write characters very, very well. Correct. <laughs> They're there to explore an idea and not really to be people. They're just, like, uh, parts of his engine that he's building. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think Leonid is that. Like, Leonid is supposed to be, like, the everyone character who represents the audience. And but literally also... it's called the engine at the end. Yeah, it literally is called the engine, but I also really liked him. That's what I'm saying, and you, and you like Tesla, and you'd like to see him again. Um, yeah. I love Da Vinci in this. I th- I think Da Vinci is sexy and cool, and I love time oh, travel yes. since Da Vinci. Hair is so wavy. My uh, the image of him flying in his contraption into the sun it was my uh, Tumblr banner for the entirety of me having a Tumblr, and so it's got a real uh, place in my heart. That Dustin Weaver art, the Dustin Weaver. I mean, we're we're talking about Hickman so much, but fundamentally, Dustin. This is Dustin Weaver's book. I think he does amazing work here. It's really good. Yeah, the art is it's really good. <laughs> It blew me away. I, without even looking, I'm just like flipping through, looking for panels that I was uh, remembering, like the one where um, Nathaniel's reaching for the night machine and he transforms into like all the rainbow-colored alternate universe Nathaniel's. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but I accidentally flipped to the page where they're in uh, a palace somewhere and they're trying to catch the night machine and they're running on the ceiling with these like weird shape-shifting guns while the night machine is blasting them. And you want that's it on the side the, of your van. the Immortal City. Oh, that's uh, in the halls of the Immortal City. Yeah. And the Immortal City, just like you guys, the the images in this totally burn themselves into your brain. And I think that a lot of that is Weaver's design. Way more. They're in the adjective noun. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. The 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 like environments are so good. It's it feels like a real place. A lot yeah, of the have... a lot of the Marvel universe can feel kind of empty, which you know you got to put out a monthly book. And half the time you don't really need all the buildings behind Spider-Man as he punches. I was going to try to pick a 
random villain, but for some reason I kept thinking Vulture. I'm like, he's not cool enough. He's not cool enough <laughs> to get punched. <laughs> I used to write for CBR, and I would see a bunch of comic images over and over again for all the stupid things you would see on CBR. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> one of them was the picture of Captain America dying on the court steps at the end of Civil War. Do you know the page I'm describing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And... The art is okay for that era of Marvel. It's pretty good. Um, but in the image, um, someone's yelling Steve, and someone else is yelling, where's that fucking sniper? But it's a Marvel comic, so you can't say fucking. So it's a bunch of punctuation, and it completely kills the mood of the drama of the scene. <laughs> ah, Mark Millar. Um, I think that's a very bigger issue. Yeah, it wasn't um, at the end. Oh, you're right. That wasn't actually in the Civil War main. Yeah. I'm looking at a page, and it's, it's serving a similar per art purpose. You turn the page to an amazing two-page spread that's supposed to sell the drama of a moment, and it's when um, uh, Da Vinci is showing Leonid um, the, the city while they're, like, floating on his big platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you turn the page, and it's this breathtaking uh, piece of art that was my desktop background for a long time with, like, these amazing temples and a coliseum and these Venetian-style canals. And Da Vinci simply says, I built all of it. And... The the understated drama of the dialogue completely fits the overstated drama of the art in this like perfect way that doesn't kill the moment and it, that's like what this comic telling the storytelling technique is supposed to do in the way that that Ed Brubaker page in Captain America completely falls on its face. <laughs> yeah, the 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 like environments in this have just like an incredible sense of like depth and like these are like real spaces that you could touch and like navigate. I really love when artists do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's so much harder to do. It's so time-consuming, and it hurts your hands, and it, every page yep. takes that much longer. Seven years longer. I guess. I don't think Dustin was drawing for seven years. I think that fell on Hickman. <laughs> I don't rightly know, but... Or maybe Marvel just pulled it, and the two got busy. <laughs> I really like that two-page... I think it's a two-page thread in the in the first issue with... I think it's Newton and Galileo, and they come outside and they see, like, Galactus standing over the city. Yeah, and I think you can see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah. Was that Newton? That one was one of my favorites. It was I it was somebody in Galileo, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know the page you're referring to. And there's, um, there's a Herald of Galactus, and I don't, I wish I recognized him. It's not Silver Surfer. I'm actually oh, confused yeah. about that whole thing because, like, why does Galactus not remember coming to Earth before? Galactus comes to Earth. Uh, well, they feed him. They feed Galactus. Like you'd think he would remember Earth. It's just beneath his notice. Why would he remember? It's, it's just true, a... and it's a different a different herald. So, do you remember the sandwich you ate 689 years ago? <laughs> That's it's Galactus. He doesn't give a shit. All right, Dio. Um. Okay, so like I was saying, there is a bunch of places you can go if you want to see these ideas continued. It's usually in series that Hickman has something to do with. These ideas have stickiness, which is important when you're doing a miniseries like this. Yeah. There's um, the aforementioned Secret Warriors by Hickman, um, a great series about Nick Fury, and it um, uses a bunch of uh, characters and elements from this. But the other one is Avengers World. Who, did Nick Spencer end up writing that? Who takes over yeah. Hickman? It was Spencer and Hickman. Yeah. Um, and Spencer does a really pretty, like, a fun action arc with Shang-Chi and um, a couple of the Secret Warriors characters going into the the city under Rome mm-hmm. and having to fight a bunch of uh, Renaissance zombies. Ooh. And it's just like, you know, that idea, that's fun. Um, <laughs> Renaissance uh, zombies? Yeah, yeah, it's just like a real uh, action mum up 
undead wizard stuff yeah in the like lost city under rome in the catacombs and that's pretty cool but so um some of the ideas and the imagery from this is like uh, remain sticky and i always think that's fun i love yeah. little things stuff that's like a that. It's important. I mean, when you have miniseries that show up and then disappear, it's kind of sad when you've got, you know, a connected universe. I guess I think the fact that he's not referencing a lot of this stuff in X-Men is actually pretty cool and like a big statement because because um, to make Secret Wars was such a definitive ending statement that that was like him uh, parting with all of these old ideas that ended with um, Secret Wars. And X-Men is him coming back and like starting a whole new chapter is what it feels like to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I could also see why he doesn't really want to reference this stuff with X-Men because like X-Men is kind of on in often like a totally different like place, I would say like thematically and doesn't really interact with S.H.I.E.L.D. that much. Yeah. It, it would be kind of weird for the secret history of Moira to run up against the secret history of Sexy Da Vinci. <laughs> oh my god, that's the best pitch I've ever heard. Why are you toying like this? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that would be weird. I think that would be awesome. I love Sexy Da Vinci and Moira. Maybe he's just waiting. He's biding his time. Da Vinci's going to show up in the final arc. Oh my god. He's going to fly out of the sun and be like, X-Men, I have returned. I will save us from becoming a singularity phalanx. He points at Apocalypse. He's like, "You remember him, Hotep?" And he's like, "Bruh." Yeah, they fist bump. <laughs> and Apocalypse. Apocalypse has stretchy powers. He he uh, stretches his fist into the air because Da Vinci's hovering. Wait, he does. Yeah, he's got all these shape shifting powers. I didn't know this. I thought he was just big and blue. Yeah, I also didn't know this. I thought he was just like a guy. <laughs> Admittedly, Apocalypse over the years has um, obtained all these celestial relics, like that armor he wears while the pipes hanging down. Mm-hmm. Were built by the Celestials, and those have imbued him with other powers. So I don't know what was. I, I'm not here to divide what's a mutant power and what's a celestial power, but he can do a lot of crazy shit. Hmm. Maybe they'll explore it, or maybe they'll steal. They'll take all the the powers away from him in Ten of Swords. I'm here for it. I mean this this episode will air after Ten of Swords finishes, so we will know. <laughs> I, I'm one of those well X-Men after. people, Marn, who loves to know all the stupid, uh, specific things that have gotten forgotten in X-Lore. Yeah, like like the quiet math. <laughs> the quiet math, actually, you loved the quiet math. It just felt like kind of a, a Lovecraft riff to me. I, I mean, I loved it, but I was also like, what is he even trying to do? Why does the I symbol equal 2060? Like, why is that so important? Well, because that's the year that the world was supposed to end. Yeah, yeah, that's like the year that the world is supposed to end. But also, yeah, why the eye symbol? <laughs> Clear, clearly, I didn't put that together until we got to the end. I'm like, why Why does he care so much about the year 2060? What's What's so special? It's, I think it's because of Hickman's, you know, adjective down. He's just like, oh, it's the quiet math. <laughs> you, you really liked it. It was the right spooky for you. It was. Especially because it gave us uh, that almost entirely silent issue oh yeah such a good issue yeah understated but also grand and also math (laughs) (laughs) like division is just like whoa wait 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 i got this no michelangelo he's like one divided by zero equals what what does x equal (laughs) yeah x what does that mean Do we have a uh, final thoughts? Is this a recommendation? I kind of wanted to know what you what y'all thought of the ending, specifically issues five and six, because there was that because that was where the break was, and you and five and six do feel fundamentally different to one through four, but also the second series feels long uh, different, and I wonder if Hickman had plans for like three books, 
because he feels like a three-act kind of guy, not a two-act. But he also loves screwing with expectations, so he could have just been like, yeah, no, it's a duology. Have fun. <laughs> and he loves doing things in twos. Yeah, he does. Two series that are one. And you have to tell us about the uh, those one-shots. Yes. Well, first, tell me yeah. about the ending. Yeah, Marn, did you like the ending? Um, I did. I, um, so... When I originally read it, I read basically the whole thing all the way through, and I, like, didn't know that the last two issues had come out, like, years later, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Because <laughs> they, they do feel, like, slightly out of step with everything that came before it, but I still enjoyed it, I would say. <laughs> I, I really uh, echo Martin's tone. I thought um, it kind of devolves into nonsense at the end, and... Um, and it runs out of a little bit of steam for me, like some of the grandeur and the excitement and like the the reverberating energy in those uh, in the first six issues is missing from the entire like uh, latter half. It seems like he ran back and he's like, oh, those ideas were so good, but he wasn't uh, his heart wasn't as in it as it once was. Yeah, I know that's kind of uh, ephemeral and difficult to prove, but that's like the the feeling that the book gave me when I was reading it. I wonder if he was just spending those seven years trying to crack the last like issue five because mm. issue five was... is that's it was very much like. I don't completely understand everything I'm reading, yeah. but like I, I'm nodding along and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> right? Yeah, and even even if it uh, was, if you're comparing them, it wasn't as good. It's still like I love the nonsense of it because I just love this yeah. nonsense. Yeah, I I found it difficult to follow, not follow, but like as I'm reading the page, I'm like, how am I supposed to be reading this? And so I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna read just the top third. And so I did that because I'd read this previously and I read it, you know, top down, page, page. But this time I'm like, I'm just going to read one timeline and then one timeline. See if it makes any more sense than like the cascading boxes that kind of play with each other. But I... that's one of the reasons why Hickman books are so rewarding to uh, to revisit is pages like that. Because when you if you read that in a different mood, maybe you'll read it in a different way. Yeah. I did, I really enjoyed the way he was playing with and representing time and the way Weaver drew it and made it just different enough. And also Obeck colored it, you know, each one, one green, red, blue to, to indicate the different dimensions. I still don't know how that happened. I Yeah, I think they're like alternate timelines. Yeah, did, did the human machine bring them to different timelines or was Da Vinci using the power of the celestial that was filled with the quiet math. I think that's, for all for all his, he, Hickman doesn't like to explain, and a lot of times that works. This is one of those times I think he could have used some more exposition, some clear exposition. Yeah. Um, but none of us really minded that, cause, right? Because at, at that point, it was just, we're going through the motions of uh, solving this problem, and it doesn't, it's not unsatisfying, it's just incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean... <laughs> Newton gets split into whatever the heck happened to him. Oh yeah, that was that was a cool panel. It's just like, oh yeah, Newton, stop this, and he's just bisected and pulled apart. He's like, are you gonna behave now? Yeah, that was a very cool like piece of art where he like half of him gets like segmented into like bones and muscle and stuff. I really liked that, and it felt very Da Vinci, right? Mm-hmm. Like a Da Vinci drawing. I mean, we get the Vitruvian Man. Um, I I don't know, know why I'm comfortable with being like, yeah, Da Vinci is the hero and Isaac Newton is the villain, when I do not know if real history would reflect that. Well, <laughs> let me tell you about that one shot. Oh, yeah. Uh -oh. That was tight, Elias. That was great. So it's divided into four different stories, each one with a different artist. 
Uh, I don't know. I'm guessing which artist is which because, again, credits aren't given. But uh, we start with, we have Nick Batara, Zachary Baldus, Kevin Mellon, Gabriel Hernandez-Walta, and Dan Brown. I believe Dan Brown colored one of the stories or maybe lettered it. I'd have to look it up. We also never mentioned that Todd Klein lettered this entire thing, and he's Todd Klein. <laughs> he absolutely knocked it out of the park, I having to render all the, the Celestials type and the, the stupid eye symbol. <laughs> you have oh, to do yeah. all that. Hieroglyphics. He's yeah. switching blacks and he's switching whites. He's got multiple uh, font sizes. Just hats off to Todd Klein, who never asked for much and deserves the world. Yeah. So the... There are four different stories. The first one is a punch em up between the Colossus of Rhodes and uh, uh, some Eternals machine. It's very Kirby, Fourth World style. It definitely feels like... Uh, what was the name of the, of the, the thing from the Kree Scroll War, Jake? That burst uh, through the, the wall in one the, issue. The, the Kree Protector or whatever it's called. Yeah, it looks kind of like that. So the Colossus of Rhodes as powered by some guy from the Brotherhood of S.H.I.E.L.D., they get him to a punch him up. <laughs> oh, this That's is fun. Story. I would have loved a miniseries like this, just issue by issue. <laughs> yeah. And this this one, oh, it was Archimedes. Oh, yeah, that's so fun. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. More more Europeans. Uh, and, and Newton's telling the story of his brother. And then there was a story of Rome where a bunch of people break in to try and take a message from Nostradamus out to Michelangelo and they all die. But they make him, they make it to Michelangelo and he's like, Nostradamus is still alive. Michelangelo smirks. So the, the one shot kind of feels like a check-in on a bunch of the characters, even though we kind of know where they are in between volume one and two and this is the past. Just like deleted scenes. Yeah. But then the third scene is a scene we don't get in the first series, I believe, and it's Nikola Tesla being operated on by Michelangelo. So you get the full dramatization of what happened to him and what was just kind of told to you, just that one splash page where it's like, what happened to you? And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. That's like a classic deleted scene, right? Like you see what it could have done for the story, but like without it, it just leaves it like creepy and ambiguous. Yeah, and you find you kind of know what he was looking for, and this is where he. This is also where it's revealed, which we don't find out until like three or four issues into the second series, that uh, the three the brothers from the Cal- the Eternal Caliphate are still alive and kept in cryogenics on uh, in the basement or something, and also the how Tesla got the key. That's uh, all kind of disrespectful, but what you gonna do? <laughs> What the the cryogenics? Yeah, that we're just uh, we just froze the caliphate guys. They couldn't sleep. They don't get the infinity formula. No, apparently not. Yeah, I thought that was weird too. And like, you never get an explanation for what happened to them. Like, they're just like, yeah, they're kind of mentioned a couple times, and then they disappear. And then they show up again because they're the one who is, will be, and always has been. I think was what purpose they solved in the machine. Yeah, that sounds like cool nonsense. It is cool nonsense, but we never get any. We get no nothing. We know all this about Galileo before he's, you know, strangled to death by Newton. <laughs> and then the final story is how Newton basically killed everyone in his time period that was smart. Brutally. Uh, who is it? Lieb- Leibniz comes to confront him. And he's like, <laughs> dude, you've been killing everyone. And that's just a montage of Newton murdering people with poisoned apples, stabbing them in the street, drowning them in, what was it, formalin, 
instead of water. Um, I think he kills oh Hook God. with a spring. No, he just strangles him. John Locke. That's fun. So it's Newton killed all of the like Enlightenment philosophers and stuff. Yeah, he killed John Flamstead, Robert. Ho- uh, yeah, Robert Hook, Blaise Pascal, John Locke, <laughs> and then he beats Leibniz to death with his Principia Mathematica. Wait, that's oh so God. funny. I 100% hats off to that story. That's really good. And that's the end of the, the, the issue. Who, who wrote that one? Was that Hickman? Yeah. Oh, no, uh, I'm sorry. The, the final page is Newton then looking at the apple. He left an apple at the death of each of their scenes, and he just smiles at it. That's his gravity-proven oh, so apple. Good. <laughs> so, like, I've... I I don't know why they didn't put that at the start, because that would have been such a great transition. You're right. But it probably would have made everyone who was just picking up the second volume absolutely lost. They're like, why are we getting these vignettes? What's with Newton murdering all these people? And it kind of undercuts a couple of the reveals, like... All this what happened though, to Tesla? That's the that's the fun of this is that Newton is a crazy serial killer across Europe and the Enlightenment. And now he's trapped on the alternate Earth that what's his face that Galactus consumed, as you do. Tough look for my guy Newton. <laughs> yeah, that's the, promise... that's the that's the final issue of the trade. Such a weird note to end on. You're right. That is a weird note to end on. Yeah, you're right across the board. Especially after coming of, it begins with an image. And when you have that, you build. That's the, that's the actual ending, but not of the, not of infinite. Sounds like an ending. Yeah. I wonder if Tony ever got the letter from his dad. Oh, yeah. One more traumatizing thing that happened to Tony Stark as a kid. (laughs) It's like, here's my (laughs) secret shield note. I'm sure he had a secret shield note like that, like every six months or so. (laughs) (laughs) My dearest Anthony. How was the baseball game? Sorry I could not make it. I was busy in ancient Rome. And then imagine uh, what kind of adult you'd grow into if that happened. You just wouldn't take anything seriously, right? <laughs> just if every six months your dad was just like, uh, sorry I neglected you, I was off having cool time adventures, and um, this is the last time I'm probably ever going to talk to you because I'm going to die. Just kidding, I didn't die this time or the last 16 times, I promise that. But this time, it's really dangerous. I'm sure it'll, I'm sure I'll die. Psych, I stole someone's heart. It's wild that he was like, yeah, I faked my death so I won't ever have to talk to my family again. And then he just did that anyway. (laughs) What? Actually, when did he write that, or I guess speak that note? Because like the timeline's a little ambiguous. Um, The Marvel wiki is very good about this. Whatever. I mean... Uh, They're they're in 2060 in three different versions where, (laughs) you know what? In every one of those timelines, Dove Wife also dies. Yep. But the pages are small enough that, like, it's hard to tell who's dying where. How many times does Tesla die brutally? I think two of like the three. Like a lot. <laughs> uh, he and was already dead the... to begin with. Well, yeah. He dies brutally again. I mean, his death in the main series is really brutal. They, what, they, they like, blast him in half. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, you just look at the panel and they're just, like, quipping it up. But not, like you know mcu quips but they're just they're yucking it up and his body's just there in the panel yeah this series is so weird it's so weird it's so weird but i loved it yeah i think that's the best recommendation i could get it's 13 issues easy reading you get to the end and you just be like i may not know what happened but that was 
awesome. Yeah, that's the best kind of comic where you have you go into it having no idea what's going to happen. You come out of it having no idea what just happened, and you're like, well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. At least idea. Captain America wasn't a Nazi this time. Uh, you got anything else? Well, what are we reading next time, Elias? So next time, we are flying off to the moon. We are reading the 2016 Moon Knight series. It was 14 issues by Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood, Jordi Belair, and just a ton of other artists, which you'll understand why when you read it. Oh, that's a great series. I've never read this one. Ooh, you are in for a treat. It's three volumes for anyone looking uh, to read in paperback. Uh, It's been collected into one hardcover volume. No idea if it's on sale still. The hardcovers, they usually get really small printings, which is kind of annoying. But such is the case, uh, and they should all be available digitally on Marvel Unlimited if you want to suffer through them. I'm uh, I'm real excited to read this. I um I feel Lemire is probably the highest highs and lowest lows, one of the farthest gulfs of anyone I can think of for me. And I yeah. so this the read this Moon Knight for could be so hit or miss. It could be the best or the worst thing I've ever read, and I'm excited to find out which one it is. Here it's gonna be good. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll pick one that. The person who's read it didn't like. One day. One day soon. Oh, no. I'm One excited day. to do that too. I got it. good ones. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Marn, uh, where can uh, folks find you out in the world if they felt so inclined? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Corpse Survivors, and you can find my other podcast at ArgonautsPod.com. I'm going to listen to it. That I had not heard of it before meeting you, and now I want to listen to it. It sounds great. You should. I like to think it's good. Uh, a lot of it is me reading very long and complicated outlines to my co-host who says okay a lot. <laughs> okay. It sounds like our normal. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually J- Jake's role to me. Just be like, here's the history of this character. Okay. Oh, I just, yeah, I get really in, into that shit. It's good. Yeah. Elias. You can find me on Twitter at Quetzal-ish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. If you want the secret history of that name, every episode has had a hint. It is the third word of the 765th sentence in every podcast. Piece it together and you can find out. Uh, you, can also find me <laughs> you could also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, at this point, it's the new year, so... God knows what I'm writing about. Oh, shit, Riverdale's back. <laughs> That'll be fun. That's going to be fun. I don't know if this comes out before or after the first episode airs. I need to find out what's up with those VHS tapes, man. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like you're really through the looking glass. <laughs> kind of. And where can they find you, Jake? As for myself, I can be found at, um, at rambling underscore moose on Twitter. I also write for uh, multiversitycomics.com which is a pretty great website, and you should check it out. Uh, you also can, if you want to hear me talk about video games, I review video games on Cog Connected, and if you like strategy games, I just reviewed a whole mess of them, and I think I like them. You tell me. You think. You think? Well, this is coming out after I've played and reviewed them. Ah. Um, so uh, this is for future me doesn't know if I like those games yet, but I'm, I, I'm eagerly anticipating them. I think that's it, though. Yep. Thank you all for coming, and we will see you in, I guess, two or three weeks. Bye.